You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. Today I'm interviewing a return guest who probably needs no introduction, Ali Hassan. The host of the stand-up comedy show Laugh Out Loud on CBC Radio and Sirius XM, a frequent guest host on Q and As It Happens, and the host of Canada Reads, the annual book battle celebrating the best of Canadian literature, Hassan is a charismatic, insightful person whose life trajectory is of no small interest. And so listeners will find his book, Is There Bacon in Heaven?, equally fascinating. The book is a memoir divided into five sections, beginning with his childhood, titled Humble Beginnings, tracing his religious origins in section two, titled Religion, and more pressing issues of community and racism in section three, titled Belonging. He then traces his career trajectory in Follow Your Passion, Section 4, and concludes with the lovely fifth section, Fatherhood. My listeners will know that this is the second interview I've had with Ali Hassan, and I relished in this opportunity to speak with him about his very first book. Is There Bacon in Heaven may sound a little flippant or glib. But make no mistake about the gravity of this book, especially given, by the way, that I interviewed Hassan on September 11th. The relevance of this date will be evident in a moment. Otherwise, I think it's pretty clear in this book and in our interview that Hassan has this sense of responsibility, not just to the seriousness of his comedy, but also to the world. That is, as he suggests in this interview, He's interested in caring for and connecting with his audiences, as he also recognizes the power of humor, which is far greater than that of anger, a point he underscores when he consistently gets stopped at the border just after 9-11. Anger, he notes, is not a luxury that a, quote, brown Muslim man who is traveling, end quote, can afford. And so he adds this following remark with a curious pronomial shift from the first person I to the second person you. Quote, you certainly can't let people see you angry. You don't have that privilege. That's kind of what they're waiting for. It's a moment that explains why during the interview I ask him who the audience of this book is. It's also a moment like this that the reader, and you, my listeners, will come to understand how very necessary comedy is to dissolving tensions, forging connections, and even shielding and arming oneself against anticipated hostilities. Comedy produces a vulnerability, even as it also creates a kind of necessary protective exterior. At least that's what I thought when I read this exceedingly fine memoir. It made me appreciate more deeply why I've been an ardent fan of comedy and humor and satire my entire adult life. Well, here is my interview with Ali Hassan about his new book, 
is there bacon in heaven? Hello, Ali. Welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. It's my pleasure to be here. It took a few stops and starts to make it happen, but here we are. I'm just thrilled to have you back for a second time, especially because I neglected to ask you about your new book in the last interview. It was an opportunity I totally missed. And now here you are to talk about that very book. I've been thinking about it the entire time, Linda. <laughs> it's, uh, it nags me every night as I lay my head down. She never asked a follow-up about the book, I always say to myself. Well, here's the follow-up. So yeah. for our listeners, the title of the book is is there bacon in heaven, which we are going to return to, but it's formally, uh, in terms of the genre, a memoir. So I thought I'd start by asking you that. Why a memoir? And why a memoir now at this point in your life? Yeah, I like the way you're asking that because um, I do have uh, friends who have written to me uh, angrily and said, <gasps> "Really, you're too young to write a memoir. Which is a weird way to say congratulations on your book, but <laughs> but they do it anyway. But you know why? Because it's it's friends who are my age, and they're like, if you're writing a memoir, perhaps you're suggesting you're at the end of your life. That means I'm at the end of. I don't want to think about that. So this is by no means an end of life memoir. I think more than anything. Well, there's there's a couple of elements. Number one, yes, I I, I hope I'm not at the end of my life, but also. Uh, life is unpredictable. I've got mm -hmm. South Asian genetics, you know, heart disease and diabetes looming. My father got angina at 50. My wow. grandfather and my mother's uh, brother both expired in their 50s. You know, mm -hmm. like we don't we're not known for our extra long lifestyles all the time. And I haven't led the best life um, so far. Changing it around, Linda, changing it around. But also, you know, it was, uh, it's a love letter to my children and, and also a love letter to my dad who passed away a number of years I'm ago. I'm sorry. And it was, uh, it was also the right time to write it because um, I don't have a great memory. And while, <laughs> while all these things are top of mind, and, uh, you know, I, I would be remiss not to say that the pandemic helped. The mm. pandemic I think a lot of creative people got more creative and I wish my creativity could have been in the technological space where I was, you know, learning more about how to use social media and mm. uh, recording uh, videos and sketches. That is a huge weakness of mine. I was unfortunately not able to turn it into a strength in the pandemic, but the writing was something that I was, was mm. drawn mm. to more than ever in a time where my live shows had sort of dissipated or, or died entirely. And I took to writing and I took to enjoying it quite a bit. And you, you took to it very well. So allow me to say first how much I really enjoy the book. Congratulations. I'm not going to say, as your friends have said, what are you doing? <laughs> I understand that a memoir is really about one aspect of one's life that highlights or evokes the period in which one lives. Mm -hmm. And you do this very well in terms of, uh, for instance, we'll return back to this, but in terms of 9-11 and borders, that was one of the most moving and also one of the funniest parts of the book uh, for various reasons. But again, we'll return to that. You had suggested, first of all, that your book was for your children and your father and so forth, but they're surely not the only audience for this book. Who else is the audience and who else should be the audience for this book? Interesting question. I think so. I'll just tell you how the book came about. You know, it, it came out of a show that I was doing on stage for a period of about three to four years 
called Muslim Interrupted. And Muslim Interrupted Mm -hmm. flew out of a time period in my home where my children were, you know, asking very fair and straightforward questions about their identity and our our Mm -hmm. identity as a family and our religion and our background. And I found myself woefully unprepared to answer those questions. And so I'd go on stage and kind of complain about these kids and their questions, these pesky kids and their darn <laughs> And I found that, you know, when it's when it's raw and sort of in the moment, it really does elicit quite a reaction in the um, in, in an audience and people were enjoying it. And I found this new thing where I wasn't only entertaining people on stage. I was also sort of informing and I didn't realize I was doing that. Mm-hmm. But more and more, I was getting people coming up to me and saying, oh, that's interesting. You mentioned that uh, Muslims pray five times a day. I didn't I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Or people would say, oh, you, I didn't know that there was Islamic Sunday school. You guys, Muslims went to Sunday school. I'm Croatian. We had to get up on Saturdays and go to Sunday school. Or mm-hmm. I'm Greek Orthodox. And for us, it was Fridays, which was the worst. After a full week of school, we'd have to then go to Greek school. So making these interesting connections with other human beings that I hadn't been making at the, the 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 downtown comedy clubs mm-hmm. and i was really enjoying that and i was really i started to lean into it and i realized oh my god i have i have 20 minutes on my love of pork alone plus <laughs> these things with my children and i'm like i i have a couple of options here i can study islam in depth and really discover what this religion is and what it can offer in a, in a whole new way, rather than just being told I can mm-hmm. dive deep into the religion or I can, you know, as the book states, I can, I can borrow from my own contentment about who I am and where I am with the religion mm-hmm. and just sort of impart why I'm here, how I'm here and and what it means to me to be from this religious community and and how I give back to the community and offer that to my children say like here's who I came mm-hmm. from this is my dad this is why I am the way I am and here are my experiences mm-hmm. and this is who I am and why I am the way I am and this is what I can offer you for now and the rest is your own journey and i think when i put it all like that yes it is for my children but as you asked who is this book for who should it be for there's so many of us Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly children who are slightly removed by a generation from those immigrant experiences or or a number of, you know, you see that in so many different communities. And and, and sometimes you have that pride, you know, I've met Greek friends or Italian friends. Are you Italian? 110%. Oh, so your parents were born in Italy? No. Your grandparents? (laughs) No. I'm like, what? Yeah, we're four generations, but the pride is still there, that desire to be connected to something, <laughs> where your people come from, that land, that ground, that exists among so many people. And I think certainly there's people who are like, I don't know, I'm a mutt, and I <laughs> think we're part Scottish and this kind of stuff. Um, but even for those people, I think this is an interesting book. And I and I always go back to something I've said, you know, um, uh, literature is 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 art. Mm-hmm. And art is not a vanity mirror. You shouldn't always be looking for, uh, yeah. you know, a representation of yourself in art. It's also an opportunity to extend yourself and learn about others. So anybody who is interested in learning or connecting with a book about identity and culture and, and getting uh, laughs throughout, 
I mean, I, I feel like it's um, it's quite a wide audience. I, I do feel that, and I do think that. I think you're quite right. Literature extends the experience of the reader. It's not simply this mirror, which creates a kind of narcissism or a solipsistic universe. I never believed that literature should do that. So I was interested in your remark just now. You were speaking about how you feel a kind, well, you feel more comfortable in your own skin. And that also, by the way, comes across throughout the book. There's this kind of ease in the way that you speak. But there's also this kind of vulnerability. You make yourself quite vulnerable at various junctures throughout the book. So I wonder if you felt this sense of vulnerability while making yourself vulnerable in the book. You know what I mean? Um, yes. I, the short answer would be yes. There were times where I debated, should I uh, mention this? And I sound like a pretty big loser here, but I think it's all, that's all part of the journey as well. Right. And for me, the more prepared I am for anything in life, the more comfortable I am. So for example, if I have a comedy show tonight and, uh, and I'm not mm. reviewing sort of any notes or my set before five minutes before the comedy set, that comedy set is not going to go as well as one where I've been thinking about the mm -hmm. set for the last few days and, oh, it's in this city. I just read something about this. Maybe I can bring that up. And anything you do that mm -hmm. you're more prepared for, you, you you find some comfort. I've always found that. So mm -hmm. Islam was something I was, I was like constantly felt unprepared and unqualified. And, and so that's where the vulnerability was, you know, and, and even every time somebody asked me, are you Muslim? Are you a Muslim? Mm. I didn't have a confident answer. I was always trying to some jokey sort of like, ah, depends who's asking or, oh, my parents think so. Or am mm. I Muslim? You know, I'm more of a freelancer. I don't know if I'm a, a full time, you know, always with some funny answer. And, and while there, you know, I was trying to be funny, the truth underneath that was like, I don't know what I am. And I don't know if I'm qualified to say I'm a Muslim because other Muslims would be like, hey, man, we're doing all this for Islam. What are you doing? How do you call yourself a Muslim? Right. It's, it's no different from somebody being, you know, mm -hmm. I'm a vegan. And then somebody else goes, oh, so am I. And then you find out that, well, I'm a vegan, but I have chicken mm -hmm. three days a week. And occasionally I'll have lamb and I'm and other people are like, hey, do you know what it means to be a vegan? We're we're struggling out here. You're not, a, you know, don't call yourself one of us. So I, I put that on myself. And it was only when I reached this conclusion mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, I, I can't speak enough about that experience with these Jewish friends of mine saying they were cultural Jews and I'm a cultural Jew and investigating what that means one day, finally, after hearing it for years, being like, what does that mean? I always hear that. And part of me, you know, in the back of my mind, wondering, why don't we have that? I've never heard cultural Christian. I've never heard cultural Muslim. And when I found out what being a cultural Jew meant to this variety of Jewish friends that I had uh, befriended over the years, I was like, oh, my God, this is not a term in common parlance, but I am a cultural Muslim. And I, I, find, I found so much comfort in that. You know, my comedy had uh, Islam wrapped in there. My catering, I was a caterer and my food was like PR for Afghanistan or other countries that are being bombed or dehumanized in some way. So I'm making an Afghani non-pizza, 
my tiny little shirt. There's only 40 people at this event. It's my tiny little PR for this event. And I constantly have it in the back of my mind. And I realize that, you know, no one can take that away from me. And I, I think if somebody asks, do I practice? I don't practice, but I'm connected to Islam in this way through culture in a variety of ways. And it just, I don't know, you know, it's weird that it took that long to dawn on me. But when I, when it finally hit me, it hit me quite, uh, quite significantly. Of course, very difficult to pass that on to your children. Don't worry. You go to kindergarten and you tell them you're a cultural Muslim. They'll understand. It's, it takes, <laughs> you know, years of all kinds of different experiences and reflection and retrospection to understand these things about yourself. So that's why, you know, I can't really pass that on, that, mm -hmm. that title, that identity on to my children. It's your identity is such a personal thing. But at least I can pass on the journey through the book and be like, you know, do with this what you will. Hope it helps in some way. You do address some of these points throughout the book. So I'm recognizing some of the moments to which you're alluding. And as you do it, again, you do it with a sense of vulnerability, mm. but also comedy, right? So there are these moments, many, many moments, when I burst into laughter as I'm reading the book. It opens with great humor. You begin by addressing the title. Is there bacon in heaven and then you explain that you really like bacon and why should you be denied this pleasure and privilege and so on but as the book progresses there are these darker overtones that then play a greater role it's about midway through the book that this really starts to give way now I'm not sure if this is a deliberate choice on your part but I do feel that the book pushes the boundaries of comedy further so two questions did you feel or, or did you deliberately intend to do this? And even if you didn't, why do you think it's so? That is, as we progress further in the memoir, it takes on these darker shades. Uh, definitely intentional. Mm -hmm. Definitely um, something that's grounded in my, you know, 15 plus years of doing stand-up comedy. You sort of have to win people over first, or at least this was my experience. Mm -hmm. You win them over first with some some wit and some charm and some comedy, and then you can take people on a journey. Once you have them on your side, you can take them places mm -hmm. that you simply can't take them if you come out right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. They don't know your voice. They don't even know what you sound like, and you're you know, right out of the gate, some edgy joke, and people are like, where's this person coming from? What is their world perspective? What does that mean? What is their mm -hmm. point of view? Why are they saying what they're saying? So it's a, it's a technique that I've developed over quite some time, getting people to sort of trust and enjoy and be comfortable and then pushing. So that that's the first thing, you know, that, that it's a deliberate thing because it's something I know mm -hmm. intimately on, on how to do and, and, and when to do it and why to do it. But also I think, you know, you spoke about vulnerability in an earlier question. And I think this is part of the journey as well. The part of the journey is, is those dark times. And, mm. you know, it's, I would be, uh, grossly uh, remiss to not talk about racism and, and some of the darker elements because the whole reason that I loved doing that show, Muslim Interrupted, and the feedback that I got, and you know, I'm not a comedian who was getting standing ovations for 12, 13 years of my stand-up comedy, and then hmm. I'm in Sherwood Park, Alberta, you know, a suburb of Edmonton I've never heard of. I'm in Nelson, BC. I'm in Moncton. 
and people, and I mean, a lot of them are older CBC listeners. I guess some of them, people wow. with canes getting up at the end, pushing. Oh, I, wow. I almost I burst out in tears in, in Alberta watching a guy with a cane struggling to stand up to give me a standing ovation at the end. And, and the, the reason that people were moved like that by the show was that it was reminding people that we our similarities are so much more important than our differences. And it's also happened to be right at the time that Donald Trump had come into power. And so mm. it was sort of a, the antidote, you know, the pushback against what, what his message was. And not just similarities are, are more important than differences, but also, um, you know, I come from a community and, and there are many other communities like it, but I definitely am part of a community where we are constantly dehumanized, right? Mm -hmm. Different parts of the Muslim world are dehumanized so that, you know, it's easier to attack a group when you don't feel that they are on the same level as you. Yes. They're they are less than you in some way. I, best case, you're othered. Uh, worst case, you know, marginalized or dehumanized. So it was important for me to get to that as well and talk about examples globally where that's happened mm -hmm. and then personally where that's happened and and that also helps make me who I am and also you know if somebody's trying to understand my perspective I think it helps in a, in a huge way understand my perspective. It was really illuminating the section that I alluded to at the outset of the interview was bombing at the border also the title you were originally considering for the book that might have just been a little too provocative. Yeah yeah and it was about crossing the border at various junctures. One that I felt was, well, I felt that it was both funny at some moments, but also deeply painful. And that's how I feel your comedy is working in this particular book. And so comedy is contradictorily nothing to laugh at. Mm. So the book invites humor, but it's not necessarily a funny moment. <laughs> it's an important genre, you know? I'm actually gonna quote to you from your own book. So at one moment, you say when you're stopped at the border, quote, the real gift wasn't the joke the border agent had told me. It was the reminder of the power of comedy. My job as a stand-up comedian helped me, so very ironically, to break down borders at the border. That's no longer funny. That's a moment that's deeply insightful mm -hmm. about the politics of the contemporary moment and the way that comedy might mm -hmm. cut through those politics. Nonetheless, I, I feel that the comedy might also, when pushing boundaries as it does, might also come to a, a line or a limit. That is, we know that there is always the threat of being canceled and so on. So do you or how do you work through that? Well, I'll tell you what guides me, and it, this didn't make it to the book, but it's it should have. It's such a definitive moment in my early stand-up. I was in Montreal as a stand-up comedian, and this little sort of clique of comedians forms, and we have these sort of petty grievances. And it happens. That person always does seven minutes when they're only supposed to do six minutes, and <laughs> that person hasn't written a new joke in two years, and... This person is like, they're only doing uh, Thursday nights because they drink with the owner, some, whatever it was, right? And those are partly made up, partly grounded in truth. But we have these various petty grievances. I'm trying my best as an older person in comedy at that age. You know, at that point, I was 34. 
trying to be removed for them, but they're just around you. They're around you as you're in a green room waiting to go on. And then somebody says, Hey, do you want to go grab some poutine after the show? Sure. Mm -hmm. And then other people come and you just hear this. Anyway, I was already disinclined to be a part of that, but it was definitely around me. And there was times I found myself inside it. I had the incredibly good fortune to be chosen as a comedian to go to Amman, Jordan for the first annual Amman Stand-Up Comedy Festival. Dino Bidala oh, wow. knew me, a few people uh, knew me, comedians from the U.S., and they said, we'd like you to come to Jordan. And I, I remember being at my friend Q's house and getting the email, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to Jordan. I'm going to go perform internationally. This is insane. All they needed from me was, you know, seven to ten minutes of comedy on a couple of different shows. It was all very manageable, and it was this incredible experience to go to Jordan. And the experience was one thing that I got to do that. That that removed me from the, you know, petty grievance uh, club. But also, and more importantly, when I was in Jordan, our first, our first uh, item, you know, we all landed on this particular night. The next day we had a lunch with the mayor of Amman. And um, mm. he brought us in and it's Russell Peters and it's this guy, James Smith, this Australian comedian based in New York, who's fantastic. It's a few other Ahmed Ahmed, Dino Vidal, Maz Jobrani, all these comedians who were great then and gone on to do pretty significant things with their careers. And the mayor said to us in a, in a very, very heartfelt moment, he said, I, I want to thank you all for being here, but not just for being here, but also for bringing joy and laughter to a region that is so wow. desperately in need of it. And I'll never forget that my entire life. I will never forget that because it was just, I got chills then. I get chills when I repeat that story. I was just like, oh my God, comedy is so much more than what I've been thinking about it. It has this power to joy to a region. I mean, my God. And I just, I realized what I was part of and I realized what the potential is of this career that I've kind of, you know, not mm. stumbled into, but sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make a go of this career at the time. And so I think getting back to your question, you know, my goal is not to divide people. My goal is not to, you know, you find that the people who are like, you can't say anything anymore. The stuff they want to say is typically hurtful or mean in some way. So the idea is like, why is it so important for you to say something that hurts other people or mean, you know, like, I know you could, I, I, I won't, I wouldn't fault someone for having a knee jerk reaction to like, oh, you can't say that. I've had it myself. I've had it myself. Mm. What? You can't say that anymore. And it's something like, you know, I didn't I didn't realize the word spaz, for example, had negative connotations. I look at my son and I'd be like, stop mm. acting like such a spaz. I mean, you don't the word no longer. <laughs> it's has, a 1980s it, it's term. It's a 1980s term that I don't even know where it came mm. from. It's mm. just somebody who's being like uh, hyper and weird. You know, that was all it meant for me. Mm. And then you find out, you know, somebody wrote into us and that's an ableist term. And I was like, what? And I had an, a knee jerk reaction. But. You know, I, I think what I you know value is that ability to step back and say, okay, hold on a second. Is this a valid concern? If it is, why do I want to say this word so bad? Can I live the rest of my life without saying? I certainly can, especially. Exactly. So I, you know, if I'm in a position where I'm about to get canceled or, you know, yeah, odds are I've brought it on myself. And that's not really... <laughs> 
you know, that this sets me apart from certain comedians. Certain comedians, comedy is all about pushing boundaries and saying the things you can't say. Mm -hmm. And I agree with somebody should have the right to say that, but also the audience is the final arbiter. And if you are insulting most of your audience and if you are not huh. making people laugh, then what are you really doing, right? That's Your goal is to entertain. And I think secondarily, you can push the envelope. But I also, you know, at that moment in Jordan, for me, it's like, what about just bringing joy to people? You know, nothing nothing brought me more joy than people saying that uh, I had an awful week that I would never even burden you with. But just let me say it was one of the worst weeks of my life. And your comedy and this entire night um, brought me joy that I really, really needed. I used to love that for one person. How much that would make me feel happy and fulfilled. Never mind, you know, groups and communities and regions. So that's what really, that's what I get off on. The larger audiences and entertaining people, uh, you know, bigger audiences. Will I one day get in trouble for my comedy? Maybe I will. But I, my hope is that I will be the type of person who says, you know what? I made a mistake there. I'm, my goal was not to uh, insult or be mean, harm people. Is there a difference between writing for the memoir and writing for the stage? Oh, yeah. I thought I had a memoir on my hands. I mean, my, you know, this publicist was uh, was telling me that, you know, you're you're in a great place because some people, particularly when they write fiction, they take one tiny kernel of an idea and then mm -hmm. have to create an entire world around it. And it's very time-consuming and demanding, you already have this 90-minute show that you're doing on stage. So I sent him the 90-minute show, and in, in, in the back of my mind, I was like, so, is that the book? And he was like, no, we're about 40,000 words shy, but uh, a great start. I was like, oh, oh, there's work to be done. Dang it. But, um, yeah, I think I had something on my hands. You know, I had this sort of foundation, let's say, but but when you write for the stage, you certainly don't have to be as introspective and and reflective as, mm -hmm. as you do when you're writing. And my editor, to his credit, would constantly mm -hmm. be like, great story. Why are you telling it? Why do people need to hear it? And on stage, you don't have to answer that question. I told something because it entertained for the sake of entertaining. I'm an entertainer. What do you mean? Why tell that? That's not that doesn't even come up. But my editor would be like, this is a chapter, but only if you give people some context on why you're telling that story and what the takeaway is and how it connects to the rest of your thing. So that's really where the work was. And that's work I had never done before. It's so well crafted. So kudos to you and your editor. Yeah. You trace this in a very coherent way, who you are and how you arrived at this particular moment. It's very well crafted, as I say. Well done. Thanks, Linda. Thank you. And thank you, Justin Stoller. Shout out to Justin, my editor. Shout out to your editor. Um, could I ask you to read a passage from the book sure. of your own choosing for the listeners, please? I can read page 67, 68 over here. And uh, yeah, that would be that would be great. About It's related to pork and related to bacon. Uh, if you like that, if Perfect. you want something more lighthearted. Anything that you feel like you would like to read to us. Sure. So this is an excerpt from a chapter called I'm Pretty Flexible in That Department. My dearest Peppy, I hope my letter finds you well. This past month has been awful without you. 
Please know that I do think about you often. My heart aches at the thought of us not being reunited soon. Mother says we don't belong together, but you mustn't pay her any mind. She comes from a different time and place where affairs such as yours and mine were uncommon. You will always be my pepperoni. <laughs> the consumption of pork is forbidden in Islam. And the interesting thing is that it's also forbidden in Judaism. And frankly, I think this could be the most underappreciated and overlooked tool in the struggle for Muslim and Jewish unity. I mean, don't you see it, guys? It's the old, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> Stand together against your common foe. That said, it would appear that the animosity between Jews and the pig has been decreasing steadily over time. For a number of years, I hosted a Christmas time comedy show with a roster of Muslim and Jewish comedians. It was cleverly entitled Kosher Jokes for the Halalidays. I can't take any credit for that name. That was the genius of my friends Iman and Jess. But it was a rare and treasured moment to be in a room with many Muslims and Jews simultaneously. And I took the opportunity to launch into my own personal surveying. I would ask, how many Jewish people are here right now? There would be cheers. Okay, and how many of you eat pork? There would be cheers. All right, and how many Muslims are here right now? There would be cheers. Okay, and how many of you eat pork? Utter and complete silence. See, this is interesting. Who was here that eats pork? And a few hands would go up, and I would say, tell me, are Jews technically allowed to eat pork? No. And yet you do. Why is that? Meh. <laughs> that was a revelation to me. There's no meh in Islam, certainly not when it comes to pork. One time when I was in Atlanta, I went to visit a friend named Faz at his apartment. And as we were chatting, I let out that I ate pork, and he thought it was hilarious. He also felt it was imperative that I tell this to his cousin, a 19-year-old visiting from India who was camped out on Fez's couch, high out of his brains, playing Tetris on a big screen television. Hey, Samir, Ali has something to tell you. Do I, though? We could probably skip it. I guess. Okay. I eat pork. Samir froze for a second, then paused the game and stood up with great difficulty. And he looked at me with parental level disappointment in his eyes. And he said, you eat pork, man, bro, bro, that's the unforgivable sin. Two things about that. First of all, it's not. I actually looked it up and this kid was doing some major editorializing from the good book. And second, I still never ruined somebody's vibe quite like I did that day. I completely killed the buzz of a kid who'd been smoking weed for at least seven hours with the news of my pork consumption. I don't know where that guy is now or what he's become, but I can tell you that he will never be ready to hear the news <laughs> that I was a judge at Ribfest. Thank you, Ali. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. That's my pleasure. I enjoyed that. And that was my interview with Ali Hassan. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Getting Lit with Linda on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.